Well, amen. Well, please uh, turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 9. And as you're turning to Luke chapter 9, uh, just a little bit of an announcement. Uh, this morning, uh, Living Grace Church is, is in the building as well, and they are meeting in Banquet Hall A across the hallway for a baptismal service. And uh, now this is the awkward part. Some of you may be in here from Living Grace, and we uh, would love to worship with you, but we understand some of you may be being baptized and have come in here, and so we'd hate for you to miss uh, your baptismal service. We're going to stand up in a moment, and if, if you're from Living Grace, uh, our feelings will not be hurt at all if you decide that you want to go worship with your church. Um, Bethany Community Church, though, we will be watching you. You will stay here. <laughs> you will not participate. No, uh, we, we won't be watching, so... I'll be praying so you can sleep, uh, slip out while my eyes are closed, too. Uh, but but we're, uh, we're glad that, that uh, if you're at Living Grace, we're, we're glad that uh, you're able to, to use the facilities with us this morning. So we are, uh, we've been excited about your baptismal service, and, and uh, we apologize for any uh, confusion this morning as well. And we're hoping that God is glorified in your service as well this morning, if, if you're part of that. Well, let's, uh, let's stand as we read God's Word together this morning, Luke chapter 9. And, excuse me, and we're going to be beginning in verse 18, and we'll be reading through verse 22. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 18, it says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And we'd be encouraged and instructed through God's word this morning. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for the opportunity to worship you this morning. We thank you for your word, and we pray that our hearts would be attentive to it. We pray that you would help us to understand more closely who you are, who your son Jesus is, and that we would be strengthened in our knowledge of that and communicate that truth to others. We pray that you would soften our hard hearts, Lord, and we pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. Isaac Asimov, the late Isaac Asimov, was an incredibly prolific writer. He wrote hundreds of stories. He's primarily known as a science fiction writer. That's how he's popularly known. But he wrote many stories. He wrote essays. He wrote textbooks. And in fact, in 1988, a collection of his essays was published. And the title of this book that was a collection of his essays was The Relativity of Wrong the relativity of wrong. And the title of the book came from the last essay in this collection that was also entitled, The Relativity of Wrong. And what Isaac Asimov's contention was is that we too quickly separate answers into wrong answers and right answers. In fact, as students, maybe some of you have struggled with this. He said, you know, oftentimes in a school setting, Several students will get the wrong answer, but some students will be so close and, and more right than other students, and he argued there should be some sort of mechanism in place whereby we recognize that some students 
are learning more than others and, and still give them partial credit, even though their answers are not, strictly speaking, correct. He gives this example. He says, imagine you're in a, a school and the question is, what is two plus two? And one boy answers, two plus two equals 17. Okay? He's wrong, right? But Asimov says, what about the boy who says two plus two equals purple? Okay? Surely that boy is more wrong than the other boy. And what about a third student who answers that 2 plus 2 equals 3.999? Yes, Asimov says, he's still wrong, but couldn't you say that he's nearly right? <laughs> Asimov argues that wrong in some senses, wrong answers in some senses are relative. And I believe he makes a valid point there. However, I would hope that he would agree that sometimes it doesn't matter how wrong you are, you're still wrong, and you really need to be right. <laughs> For example, let's say that there was a button in a room, and you and I are in this room, and the button said self-destruct. And I asked you, uh, what do you think? Should we push the button? And you said, boy, I don't know. I don't think we should, but, you know, maybe I guess the effects would be the same as if you said, absolutely, I think we should. Let's do it now, right? It doesn't matter how wrong your answer was. It was still wrong. The effects are the same. Or let's say that you're a, a dad and you have a, a beautiful little girl who overnight has grown into this beautiful princess, this young lady, and some creep of a guy comes asking for her hand in marriage. And you know that this is not a good guy and this guy asks your daughter, your princess, uh, will you marry me? The wrong answer is still the wrong answer, no matter how it's given. Well, maybe, you know, you don't never had a job, but okay, we'll, we'll live on love. That's just as wrong an answer as yes, absolutely. The answer is still wrong. The effect is still the same. There are some questions that it doesn't matter how close to the right answer you are. As long as you're wrong, the effect is still the same. It's still a disaster of a wrong answer. This morning, as we're in Luke chapter 9, we're looking at a question. It's a question that Jesus asks, and it's a question that we've seen throughout the text, throughout the Gospel of Luke. And the question is, who is Jesus? The question is, who is Jesus? And what we're going to see this morning is that some people answer this question more incorrectly than others, and yet it's vital, it's of vital importance to our lives and to the health of our soul that we get this question, the answer to this question, exactly right. And my primary purpose this morning is to help you answer this question correctly. My primary purpose is to cause you to ask the question, who is Jesus, and to answer that question correctly. And it's very possible that some of you this morning could answer this question more correctly, or let's put it this way, some of you could answer this question less wrongly than other people. So some person may not know anything about Jesus, and you say, who is Jesus? They say, I, I don't know. Uh, is he a diplomat from some place? I don't know who Jesus is. Another person may have some basic facts about Jesus. Maybe you know a whole bunch about Jesus. You can tell me that he was born of the Virgin Mary. You can tell me about his resurrection on Easter. Uh, you can tell me some, you can find out information about his life in the Gospels. And you can give me 
a decent understanding of who is Jesus, but there's an event in Jesus' life, an aspect of who he is that is so central to understanding who Jesus is that if you do not understand this, my contention this morning is you do not understand Jesus. If you do not understand this aspect of Jesus' life and ministry, you cannot accurately answer the question, who is Jesus? And so this morning we're going to be asking the question, who is Jesus? And we're going to look at, we're going to look at three different answers to the question, who is Jesus? That's my, that's my primary purpose this morning. That's, that's what I want us to do together. Now, here's my secondary purpose. Some of you who've been here for a while may remember that in August of 2008, I believe it was August 17th, 2008, we as a Sunday school class met in this room for the first time, August 17th of 2008. And we looked at this same story, but we looked at it in the Gospel of Mark. And as we looked at this story, I asked you to consider this question, who is Jesus, from a different perspective. In fact, I gave this illustration. I, I said that uh, Whitney and I sometimes play this game called Stump the Spouse, right? And here's how you play Stump the Spouse. My goal in my relationship with Whitney is to tell her everything and to, to be so well-versed in who she is and, and what happens in her life and her to be so well-versed in what happens in my life that if you come up to me and you tell me something, my goal is to be able to tell it to her before you get to her, right? So, for example, and now, very often we're stumped, <laughs> But if you come up to me and you tell me, hey, uh, Daniel, just good news, we're expecting, my goal is to get to my wife and tell her that before you get to her so I don't get stumped, you know. And so if she doesn't, if there's something about your life that I know, that I make sure that she knows it too. And we also play stump the spouse by trying to, and you don't know this, but we play it in, you, in your life as well. We'll tell one of you one thing, we'll try to see if you get to the spouse before we do. Everybody needs a hobby, Right? That's ours. So I, what I said in, in relation to that illustration as we looked at this text two and a half years ago is, look, there are some people in your life that you should be very close to, and you should know how they would answer the question, who is Jesus? And so that's a secondary goal that I have this morning as you look at this text and you think about the different answers that are given to the question, who is Jesus? You would know how your neighbor would answer this. You would know how your spouse would answer this question. You would know how your children would answer the question, who is Jesus, okay? So, primary purpose again, though, is for you to ask this question of yourself, who is Jesus, and you would have the right understanding as to who Jesus is. Let's look at the text together, and let's look at answer number one. We see it in verses 18 through 19. It says, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. So what's happening here from the other gospel accounts, we see that Jesus and his disciples are traveling into Caesarea Philippi, and as they travel north into Caesarea Philippi, at a moment Jesus is praying, he's alone, and then he asks the question to his disciples. He asks this question, he asks it in the third person. He says, as you're listening to the crowds talk about me, we've been together for a while here. We've been doing this ministry in Galilee. You've, you've seen the crowds surrounding me. You've seen me do miraculous things as we've been interacting with these crowds and proclaiming the kingdom of God. Here's a question. What do the crowds say about me? 
Who do they say that I am? As you hear them talking about me and my ministry, obviously some incredible things are going on. What do they say about me? And the disciples answer this way. They say, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others name others, and, and other say a prophet of old has arisen. Now, it's interesting to notice this. They don't say, well, some of the crowds think like you're some crazed lunatic. Or some of the crowds say that you must be demon-possessed. Some of the crowds are saying some terrible things about you. No, the disciples, are all they, the people they mention are all good people. John the Baptist is the one who came proclaiming the coming kingdom of God and the necessity of repentance in order to enter God's kingdom. And so John the Baptist stands in, in line with the Old Testament prophets, and it's, he's a good person to be identified with. They mention Elijah here. Elijah is a, a is a person that's, that's uh, an honor to be mentioned with as well. In fact, if you look at the last book in the Old Testament, the very end of the Old Testament, the last words of God to his people before the coming of Jesus, in Malachi chapter 4, the last two verses, Malachi, the Lord says this through Malachi, says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. And so Elijah is seen as the forerunner of the last day, the eschaton, the, the end of time. And so to be identified with the coming of Elijah is to be identified with this prophetic figure. However, however, they're wrong, right? If you came up to me and you said, hey, Daniel, I, I just want you to let you know you are a good teacher. I'd say, oh, shucks, thanks. No, I mean, you're great. Are you Elijah? Are you John the Baptist? Like, come back to life? Nah, stop it. I'm not into that. What's well, a compliment for me, although ridiculous, is blasphemous when referring to Jesus Christ. It's not just that, that Jesus Christ is a, another one of the great teachers. Jesus Christ is, is completely different. In fact, that brings us to the first principle here as we look at this first answer. It is, the, the, the first principle is this. It is not enough for me to confess that Jesus is a great teacher or prophet. As I answer the question, who is Jesus, it's not enough for me to confess that Jesus is some great teacher or, or some great prophet. What would be a compliment to another person is blasphemous when it comes to referring to Jesus Christ. There's a guy at our church that is a, a very good-looking guy. His name, you may know him, is, is Mike Joyner. Now, I say that Mike Joyner is a very good-looking guy because people often confuse the two of us. And uh, I feel sorry for Mike. You know, Mike and I have some similar features. I, we both wear glasses. And uh, some people look at Mike and often confuse us, and, and you people need to ask Mike uh, for his forgiveness. This has happened to me several times in life. For example, when I was in junior high, I, there was another kid in our class that, that looked a lot like me. His name was Rich Roberts. And Rich and I had a science class together with one of the coaches, and we had science class with this coach, and this coach was a, a really just a, a gruff guy. He didn't want any back talk. If, if he corrected you, he, you, he dealt with it, and, and you, you didn't say, you didn't argue with him. You just said, yes, sir, if he was correcting you. In fact, we had science with him, 
And then right after science, those of us who were the, most of the boys in the class had athletics with this coach right after science class. And the way that uh, coach dealt with discipline problems in science class with the boys is he'd say, I, I'll see you next period in athletics. And this was in Texas, uh, and so you're allowed to swat kids, right? And so you'd go, you'd disobey in science class, he'd say, I'd, I'll see you in athletics, and you'd get a big swat, right? Texas-sized paddle. Now, one, uh, one day I'm, I'm there in class, and I'm, I'm kind of cutting up a little bit, didn't, see, didn't think coach could see me, and coach looks at me and goes, Roberts, I'll see you next period. Yes, sir. Next period, he's calling the roll, gets to Robert's name, Robert's office. You know, Rich, okay, got a swat, never knew why, right? <laughs> no clue. You know, just because some people have some similar features doesn't make them the same person, right? Just because you look at Jesus and you say, you know what, uh, Jesus is, is teaching about the coming kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus is teaching these, these things, and, and uh, these other great teachers are, are teaching these things. They must be the same guy. Now, understand this. It's not enough to confess that Jesus is a great teacher or prophet. Is he a great teacher? Of course. Was he, a, a great, was he the greatest teacher? Of course he was. But so often today, people answer the question, who is Jesus, and say, well, he's, he's a great guy. He's a great teacher. We must, be, we must be talking about the same Jesus. And I tell you, we're not. For example, the Jehovah's Witness, they say some wonderful things about Jesus. They say some wonderful things about what he taught. And yet, who is the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witness? He's, he's Michael the Archangel. Mormons say some wonderful things about Jesus Christ. They say that, that he uh, was the Son of God. They talk about him and, and the need to, to believe in him. They talk about his resurrection. They talk about his crucifixion. They say some wonderful things about Jesus. But the Mormon Jesus is not God. It's not the same God. I was talking recently to a friend, and they were talking about the Muslim religion. They said, you know, we... He identified himself as a Christian. He says, you know, we and the Muslims believe so close to the same thing. I mean, we're almost exactly the right. The only difference is, you know, they think Jesus is the great prophet, and, and we, we think Jesus is God. It's not a minor difference, right? The first answer to the question is wrong. Now, it's less wrong than saying that Jesus was a false prophet. It's, it's less wrong than what some of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin were saying about Jesus, but it's still wrong. It's still dangerously wrong. That's the first answer that we see to the question, who is Jesus? If he's this great ethical teacher, how does that affect us practically? Well, if Jesus is just some great ethical teacher, then I approach him the same way I do Socrates or the same way I, I do uh, Thomas Jefferson or, or any of the other great thinkers in human history. And if you answer the question, uh, Jesus is a great teacher or a great prophet this morning, you are far short of who Scripture says that Jesus is. Colossians chapter 1 says this about Jesus, verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and, un and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. In him, all things hold together. 
That is a much different person than a great teacher or a great prophet. And if I say Jesus is some great teacher or great prophet, the demands on my life are relatively small. But if I say Jesus is God himself, the demands upon my life concerning Jesus Christ become infinitely greater. That's the first answer we see in the text. Jesus is a great teacher, great prophet. Here's the second answer we see in verse 20. In verse 20, Jesus says this, but who do you say that I am? Okay, I understand that the third person, those guys out there, that's what they're saying. Now let's turn this to you. Who do you all say that I am? And Peter, surprise, surprise, answers. Peter says, you are the Christ of God. The Christ of God. What does Peter mean when he says the Christ of God? Well, that word Christ is the same word for the word Messiah. He's saying you're God's Messiah. You're the chosen one. But Peter's understanding of who the Messiah is is limited. There were cultural expectations concerning what the Messiah was to do, who the Messiah was to be. Remember, as we go through the Gospel of Luke, we've seen some of the expectations. We've seen that people expect the Messiah to come and establish this, this kingdom. We've, we've seen some kingdom preaching in Jesus's, uh, we've seen some kingdom teaching in Jesus's preaching, and yet the kingdom that Jesus is talking about is much different than the kingdom that people were expecting Jesus to bring about. So for example, a couple of chapters before this, in Luke chapter 4, remember Jesus is beginning his ministry. He's uh, preaching. He, he uh, opens up the text. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, he's saying, yeah, I, I, this, this messianic ministry is the ministry that I'm engaged in. He doesn't come out right and say, I'm the Messiah, but he says, these messianic ministries, this establishment of the kingdom is what I'm all about. The people get all pumped. Let's do it. We're so excited. And then Jesus has some bad news for these people. He says, oh, by the way, you guys won't get to participate in the kingdom because it's not just about your ethnicity. It's about your heart attitude. And the people go, excuse me? And they become very angry with Jesus. Next chapter or two chapters over, Luke chapter 6, Jesus begins to describe kingdom ethics. And as he describes the ethics of the kingdom, people get really uncomfortable again. He turns expectations on their head. He says it's the poor who are going to inherit the kingdom of God. It's the hungry who get satisfied. It's the weeping who get laughter. It's those who are persecuted who are going to receive reward. And then he says, woe to the rich. Woe to those who are full. He goes on and he says, as he describes kingdom ethics, he says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. He is turning their understanding on its head, and this type of Messiah that he is is not the Messiah that others expected. And Peter, as he says, you are the Christ, is correct. He's less wrong than the people who just think that Jesus is a great prophet. In fact, in Matthew, in Matthew's account of this, he gives us the words of Jesus where he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but rather God revealed this to you. So is Peter right? In one sense, absolutely, of course Jesus is the Christ. But catch this, 
Peter is still wrong because he doesn't understand what it means that Jesus is the Christ. He doesn't understand what it means that that Jesus is the Messiah. And so even though he's right in what he's saying, he's wrong because he doesn't understand what he's saying. He's still falling short of rightly confessing Christ. That brings us to the second principle. And this may sound a little controversial. Hear me out. It's also not enough for me to confess that Jesus is the Christ. It is also not enough for me to simply say, well, well, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, and let me suggest this to you. Let me suggest that there are many people who have an orthodox, biblical understanding about who Jesus is, and yet still do not understand rightly who he is. When I was in college, I took a class on the Crusades, and I was super hyped about this class on the Crusades. It was a, a time in history that seemed exciting. I thought about you know, these knights and this fighting and, and all sorts of things. I bought the book on the Crusades, and I was excited about reading this book. And I got there the first day of class, and uh, I sat down on my chair, and, and the, the professor comes to the front of the class, and he starts speaking in an English accent. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. This is awesome. An English professor talking about the Crusades. And it was the most boring semester of my life. He would just, he, it was like he was trying to, to just suck all the joy out of history. And I, I was a history major and loved history. As he talked, he just kind of would, would ramble about the smallest detail and gave me no overarching picture of, of what the Crusades were all about. In fact, he, would, he knew, that, I think, that he wasn't a very good teacher, and so he gave us a, a midterm, but he allowed us to bring in uh, a, a cheat sheet. Okay? And so basically, I just took this cheat sheet and filled it with, with all the information that was supposed to be on the test, and I, I made an A in the course and yet understood very little about the Crusades because I understood almost nothing of the overarching principles and the, and the themes and, and why things were happening. Let me suggest the same is possible. In fact, I know the same is happening in Christianity. You could have grown up in church, and you can know all the Bible stories. You can know all the names of the the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples. You can talk about uh, the history of Jesus. You You can tell me about him turning water into wine all the way to the resurrection. You know your Bible stories, but it's possible. It's possible that you still do not understand who Jesus is because you do not understand the central event of his life. You do not understand that central event of his life that causes all, everything else to kind of fall into place and to understand it. Liberal theology, for example, understands a lot of truth about Jesus and yet it doesn't understand the central event of his life. The legalist understands a lot about Jesus, and and the legalist strives on her or his own effort in order to be found acceptable to God, but the legalist doesn't understand the central event of Jesus' life and ministry. The social gospel person understands that, that Jesus is coming to establish a kingdom. They want to establish this kingdom on earth, but the social gospel person doesn't understand the central event of Jesus' life and ministry, and so they don't understand who Jesus Christ is. 
it is not enough for me to simply to confess that Jesus is the Christ. It's not enough for me to simply spouse out orthodox statements about Jesus. That brings us to the third answer that Jesus gives in the text. Let's look at that. Verse 21, see answer number three. Verse 21 says, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Does that surprise you a little bit? Here Peter has just said, you're the Christ. And I mean, how, how big is our church on evangelism? How big is, the, is, is evangelical Christianity on evangelism? I mean, we have tracks, we have EE programs. Surely Jesus would say, that's exactly right. I am the Christ. Now go tell everyone but that's not what he does. He says, that's true, now don't tell anyone. Why would he do that? He's done this before, whenever the the demons are coming out in in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, verse 41, demons are coming out of many and crying, you are the son of God, and yet Jesus rebukes them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. He doesn't want that statement that he's the Christ being announced among the Jews. Why is that? Why does he say, don't tell this to anyone? Verse 22 tells us why. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Don't tell this about me, Jesus is saying. Don't tell that I'm the Christ because you don't understand the central component of my ministry. You don't understand the cross. And if you don't understand the cross, the need for the cross, and my coming as the Messiah in order to deal with sin, you don't understand my ministry. And if you don't understand my ministry, it's better not to know about me at all. And Jesus understands that it's better that the Jews don't understand who he is at all than to misunderstand. That it's possible even to make that great confession that Peter makes that you're the Christ and still fall short of the correct answer as to who Jesus is. I want you to think about what he says here. He says in verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer. There's a theological term to describe the, this, this, this event that Jesus is, is preaching about here, teaching his disciples. That theological word is the atonement, the atonement. If you're taking notes, it's spelled A-T-O-N-E-M-E-N-T, atonement. And it comes from a kind of a conglomeration of English words. It's at-one-ment. And what it means is this, the atonement describes how you and I can become at one again with God, how you and I can be reconciled to God. And if you and I don't understand what Jesus is saying in verse 22 about how we can be reconciled to God, we don't understand the Messiah. We don't understand what it means that the Messiah came. We don't understand the events of Christ's life unless we understand verse 22. That brings us to the third principle here, I must confess the suffering, rejected, dying, and resurrected Christ. In other words, I must understand the atonement if I'm going to understand Jesus' life. 
if I ask you the question, who is Jesus? You need to understand that Jesus was the Messiah, God himself, who suffered, was rejected, died in your place, and was resurrected. Jesus says this so they will rightly understand who he is. It was necessary, he says, it must, this must happen, he says in verse 22. Luke 24, 26, later he's going to say, wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Again, he's talking about the atonement. Let me give you a definition of the atonement. This is from a theologian named Wayne Grudem. It says, the atonement is the work Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. Let me say that again. The atonement is the work Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation, to reconcile us to God. 1 John chapter 2, I believe it's 1 John chapter 2 verse 2. 1 John chapter 2 verse 2 says that Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That word propitiation, it says Jesus Christ is the propitiation of our sins. What that word means is it's a sacrifice which turns aside God's wrath, making us acceptable to, be, to God. Jesus Christ came, yes, as a great teacher, of course, as the Christ, yes, of course, but he came in order that you and I could be reconciled to God. He came to be the satisfaction of God's wrath, to turn aside God's wrath from you and me, and if we do not understand that, we do not understand Christ's ministry. There's four things that Jesus mentions here. First of all, he says that it was necessary, it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer. Why was it necessary for him to suffer? Well, Isaiah 53 tells us. Isaiah 53 the prophet Isaiah says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our sins, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And listen to this. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. To understand Jesus Christ, you must understand his suffering. That you and I, because of God's great displeasure, God's wrath against us because of our sin, Christ had to come and suffer for us. He also says, Jesus also says here, it was not only necessary that, that he suffer, but it's also necessary that he be rejected that he be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. This is a group that made up the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body. Psalm 118 said this would happen. Verse 22 said that the Messiah would be the stone that the builders rejected, that it would become the, the cornerstone. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6 says, It stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laid in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. 1 Peter confirms it was necessary that Jesus be rejected. It was also necessary, Jesus says, thirdly, 
Not only that he suffer, not only that he be rejected, but that he die. Exodus 12 describes the sacrificial lamb. Then Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, says that Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation, Jesus Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood, of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And he says in verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 9, for if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And finally, he said, it was necessary that the Son of God, the Son of Man, be raised. 1 Corinthians 15, he describes, Paul describes the necessity of the resurrection. He says this, if Christ is proclaimed, this is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, he says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. If Christ has not been raised, he says in verse 17, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. If you're going to rightly answer the question, who is Jesus? You must understand the suffering, rejected, dying, and resurrected Christ. Was that a I was listening to a pastor one time describe the gospel. This pastor, I believe, gave a, a very poor, poor understanding of the gospel. He said this, he said, he kind of listed a bunch of sins that a person might commit. He said, you know, God isn't going to punish you for any of these sins. Jesus has, has dealt with those sins on, on the cross. So, so God isn't going to punish you for any of those sins. Now, all God wants you to do is to become his friend. Okay, so God d- just doesn't want you to push him away from being your friend. I thought, what? God isn't like offering some Facebook request. Will you be my friend, accept or ignore? God understands that we are in line of his wrath. You and I, as, as sinners, have, have transgressed against a holy God. Our deserving, what, what we deserve for punishment is infinite because of our transgressions against an infinitely holy God. You and I have no standing before God. There is nothing in ourselves that we should, can take before God and say, hey God, let's, let's make a deal. Let's talk about how this friendship thing can work out. There's nothing within ourselves that we can point to and say, God, accept this. This is where the legalist so, so tragically misses the mark. This is where the social gospelist so tragically misses the mark. This is where the liberal theologian so tragically misses the mark. Jesus Christ's death is not about some example to follow. 
Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross in order to, to influence us to be more moral. God didn't uh, send his son himself to die on the cross in order to, to create this, this just to, to create a just society. That's an effect of the cross. Jesus Christ came and died on the cross because you and I were in line of God's wrath and someone had to bear God's wrath for us. And if you do not understand that central truth about life and about the ministry of Jesus Christ, that his ministry came in order to appease God's wrath and to serve as a sacrifice for you and I, if you do not understand that truth, you do not understand who Jesus is. Imagine this. Imagine I had wronged another person in the church. And it it had cost them a a great financial hardship. I owed them a great sum of money in order to reconcile our relationship. And, you know, I didn't have those funds on me. And you see what's happening in this relationship and you say, boy, I want to step in and and help reconcile you two. You say, uh, you talk to this person that I've wronged. You say, I'm going to pay what Daniel owes you. The person says, that's, that's great. Thank you so much. And you say, okay, all I need Daniel to do then is, is sign this, this piece of paper saying that it's all taken care of, saying that I can, can do this transaction. Okay, that's, that's all that's left. The person comes and they give it to me and they explain the situation. I say this, you are a really nice guy. Yeah, that's, that's great. Now, just sign this. You know what? I like your shoes. Yeah, okay, that's great, Daniel, but you need to sign this piece of paper. Do you know what? I wish more people were like you. If more people were like you, this would be a better. I'm going to try to be more like you myself. I, you know what? I, you are a doer. I'm going to go be a doer. Daniel, please sign this piece of paper to reconcile the relationship. I am so glad you talked to this person. I love that guy. I'm so glad our relationship is is straight now. It's not okay. It's not reconciled. You need to take care of this. This one thing. You need to understand what I'm doing here. And I show a tragic lack of grasping the central component of this transaction. This is how so many people are with Jesus Christ. They understand he's a moral teacher. They understand he's the son of God. They understand all these truths about him, but they fail to understand this central truth that Jesus Christ came because you need a savior. And Jesus Christ suffered in your place. He was rejected in your place. He died in your place, bearing the wrath of God and was resurrected. And by believing in him as that suffering Messiah, you and I can have life. That's who Jesus Christ is. And Jesus realizes it's better that his disciples not tell anyone that he's the Christ right now rather than garble the message. There's some truth in that for us as well, right? As we talk to our neighbors, our spouse, our children, our family that's extended about who Jesus is, our friends at school, we need to make sure we get the message right. We're not trying to present Jesus as some moral dude to 
our friends. We're not trying to present Jesus as some great teacher and you follow his ethical teachings and, and you can have a great life. We're not trying to tell our, our coworkers that, hey, Jesus wants to be this guy that helps you out of a tough spot. We are trying to proclaim that Jesus Christ is the suffering Messiah who died in their place and that by faith in him alone, they can have a relationship with him. We don't want to present legalism. We don't want to present the social gospel. We don't want to present any of those things. We want to present Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God himself, dying in their place. That's who Jesus Christ is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has died in our place. And, and Father, our prayer would be that if there are any here today who have not placed their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, they would, they would do so this morning. And we pray that our own souls would be excited and encouraged as we think about the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ in our place. We pray this in his name. Amen.